اعوذبلشیطانجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم یا ایوحلزین آمن انفکو من طیبات ما کسب تم و مما اخرج نال کم من الرد ولا تیم الخبیس منہ تنفکون ولستم بآخذیہ اللہ انتغمدو فیہ والم اللہ غنی الحمید O ye who believe, spend of the good things that you have earned and of what we produce for you from the earth, and seek not what is bad or spend out of it when you would not take it yourselves except that you connive at it, and know that Allah is self-sufficient and praiseworthy. One point that Hazrat Muslim one who made in commentary of this verse is that there are some people who, when they desire to give in charity, then they start robbing people. And then what, uh, whatever they make from those robberies, they give a large portion of that wealth in charity. And those who are ignorant of the philosophy of true moral character at times think that this is a praiseworthy action. And so Hazur said that what Allah Ta'ala teaches us in this verse is that good wealth that we spend for the sake of Allah Ta'ala is only that which is legally acquired. And although a person may imagine that it is of temporary benefit to people, to help them by stealing money from those who are rich, but the harm that it does to the order in society and to the moral character and fabric of society is far greater. So this is also something that from a moral perspective we can have clarity on. That Islam has taught for that, that we not get confused with such moral conundrums where an individual benefit is presented as being perhaps overbearing and outweighing the benefit of society. Always Islam is concerned primarily with principles and overarching social benefit, even if it comes at the sacrifice of an individual. So many of the kind of moral questions that at times are raised from a philosophical perspective or a hypothetical perspective, that in this situation, what if a person seemingly is forced to do something that is evil? But can he do it for the greater good of society or the opposite? That what if somebody is forced to do something that is good, but seemingly it is evil for society? So there, Islam says that in such a situation, we don't decide based on emotions, based on what is immediate or individually of benefit, but what is of social benefit. And also, of course, we are here told to spend out of that which is pure. And just as an administrative point, when it comes to jamaat, Jamaat only accepts janda from that income that is permissible. So if a person earns from means that is impermissible, then janda is not accepted from that individual. So when that person is able to get work where he earns money from means that are permissible, then the jamaat continues to take janda from them. So here there is a point of subtlety that sometimes is confused. That exactly what is it that makes an income impermissible, by which that person's janda is not accepted, and by which they cannot hold office. So there are three main things that are forbidden in Islam that a person gets involved in when it comes to buying and selling, when it comes to owning a store or whatever it is. And that has to do with the buying and selling of interest, and then alcohol and pork. And they all come in similar categories. So when it comes to interest, this is something that is forbidden. So for that reason, if a person works in a bank, then to advertise interest-based loans and to sell things to people, which is essentially the selling of interest, that is something that is forbidden. It is not something that is, Ahmadi is permitted to do. If it is forbidden for us to use ourselves, to consume ourselves, then it is also 
forbidden for us to advertise it, to sell it, and to um, uh, be involved directly in that business. But despite that, <clears throat> as a Muslim who explained that if a person, for example, works as an accountant, or he works as a clerk, then that is something that is not forbidden because he is not selling it. He is just processing transactions. So he said that if you are an Ahmadi and you are an accountant for someone who is involved in interest-based loans, then although you are not advertising it, nor are you selling anything, but you should, with the highest degree of honesty, you should keep the accounts of that individual. Because your job is accounting. If a person is working as a clerk, then their job is a clerk. So this same logic applies to alcohol and pork as well. An Ahmadi who works where they are transporting alcohol, where they are selling alcohol or pork themselves, then it is something that is not permissible. And the Jamaat does not take janda from such an individual. But if a person is only working, for example, as a cashier where he processes transactions, then it is permissible. So an Ahmadi should not do any kind of work that involves the transporting, the stocking, the selling, the advertising of alcohol or of pork. But if he works simply in the way that an accountant or a cashier does, by, uh, by processing transactions, then that is something that is not impermissible. So this is just an administrative point of technicality, but the real issue here has to do with tayyib and khabis, which is described in the Holy Quran, that our earnings that we give for the sake of Allah Almighty should be tayyib. And the principle is that whatever we earn should be through permissible means. It should not be as a result of selling or advertising or being involved in those things that Islam has forbidden for ourselves. Naturally, if a person considers something harmful for himself, then he should not be involved in uh, advertising it and selling it to others. So this is the principle which is described in this verse. And then that is also the administrative aspect of how it is applied when it comes to jamaat and the taking of janda and also of a person being eligible to be an office holder or being able to vote in a jamaat election. The next verse is 269. Allah Almighty says, Satan threatens you with poverty and enjoins upon you what is foul. Whereas Allah promises you forgiveness from Himself and bounty, and Allah is bountiful, all knowing. <clears throat> Hazrat Muslimah who explained in commentary of this verse how it is that Satan frightens a person when a person wishes to give for the sake of Allah Almighty or given charity. And naturally the thought that arises in a person's mind is that I will become poor as a result of this. The money that I lose in giving to poor people is something that will deprive me of the things that I need and I will begin facing hardships. And this is a thought that comes in the mind of a person when they make any expense. But what we should ask ourselves is that is this thought something that is consistent, that arises in our mind? Because here we can determine if it is from Satan or not. It's very hard to determine if something is a satanic thought, if when we think of making an expense, then we come, it comes to our mind that can I budget this into my other expenses? That, that arises at the time of everything. But Hazur says that when it comes to an opportunity of fahsha, to spend our money on something that is pleasurable to us, something that is sinful, and here we can imagine something that maybe even is not sinful, something that is a comfort, a luxury, something that is pleasurable for ourselves. Then does that same thought arise? Because what we observe is that when someone is spending for the sake of their own comfort, for their pleasure, for something that is sinful, then there is no thought that arises in their mind about budgeting, about falling into poverty. Their people spend even outside of their means. And then they make ends meet by one way or the other. 
So this is where the inconsistency comes in the logic and we can see where it is that ashaytanu yaidukum al-fakra that Satan threatens you with poverty. Every, um, uh, every uh, purchase that we make, our common sense in a way threatens us with poverty. But that doesn't mean that Satan is threatening us with poverty. There's a difference between our common, our common sense or our frugality or whatever it is. But the distinction is that we should first have a clear idea in our mind that when I spend on something that I find pleasurable, that is a luxury to me, that is a lower desire of mine, then how generous am I with the spending of that money? And am I frugal with it? Does my mind take me towards a fear of poverty or do I even take, go into debt for its sake or do I make sacrifices and other things that I want? So this is where our common sense lies. This is the line by which our naturally being frugal threatens us with poverty. This is something that is not satanic at all. But now take that same thought process and then apply it to the giving of jannah or giving in tariqah jadid or giving for the sake of sadqa, giving for the sake of the poor. Anything, any fear of poverty that arises in our hearts that is above that baseline of our natural frugalness that applies in all situations, that is a shaitanu yaidukum al-fakra. That is Satan specifically that is threatening us with poverty. And that is what we are to resist. That is the, uh, the, low, the low desires that we are to fight against. That is the jihad that we are to do. So before we can do jihad against the shaitani the thoughts that arise in our mind, first it is important to have a clear logic by which, and a clear diagnosis by which we can recognize and understand them. And when we understand the insight, the, uh, the, the insight uh, when, when Satan creates temptation within our hearts, then we can actually fight against them. <clears throat> then also another point that is mentioned in commentary of this verse, Hazrat Muslim one who quoted Hazrat Khalifa Abul one who his tafsir in commentary of this verse of how Satan frightens people with poverty and how it deprives the people as on a social level of their freedom and their ability to stand for themselves. He explained that Perhaps it was during the British conquest of India that there was a riyasat, there was a province or a kingship that its relations with the British had begun to deteriorate and it seemed that war was looming and impending. And at that time the British sent messages to all of the population of that province that the money and the savings or whatever assets they had in the banks of Calcutta or whatever city it was that was under British influence, they would, all of those assets would be frozen and they would be taken away from them if they participated or took part in any hostilities against the British. The result was that all of those people who had wealth in those areas, they immediately became quiet and then the person who was the king of that province or that riyasat was arrested and he was taken away and nobody did anything about it. So this is the way in which the greed that a population has and the fear that they have of poverty can be a means of completely subduing them. As we said that this is not something that arose, for example, at the time of World War I. There, there was millions and millions of pounds or of francs or, or of dollars that were of, uh, of German currency that was in, in the London banks and of the money of the people of England that was in Berlin and that was in, invested in Germany. But when war broke out, then people didn't care at all for any money that they had invested. It was because at that time they had a certain uh, spirit, a qawmi ruh, a means by which they felt at one with their people and they were ready to sacrifice individually for the benefit of the group and for society. So it was because of that that when patriotism arose 
and defending the nation arose and to make an individual sacrifice of having their assets frozen or having them taken away from them was not a question, it was not a threat that meant anything to them. So these are the examples of two nations that existed in the same century and where corruption had come into one nation and there was a, uh, uh, the, the principles of success that existed in another nation. So these things have varied from time to time. If we were to go to the golden age of India and the dark ages of Europe, you would find the exact opposite situation arising. So when a people become corrupt, as we see happens in many societies, then people sacrifice the social good for their individual benefits. This is what we see happening, for example, in Pakistan and India today, particularly in Pakistan. This is exactly what corruption is. It doesn't just exist in politics. It exists from the highest level of politics to the lowest levels of who, the most ordinary person in society. That any time they have an opportunity to cheat the government, or to cheat their neighborhood, or to cheat anybody out of any amount of money, then they take that opportunity. It has become the norm. It is seen as foolish to sacrifice your individual interests for the sake of the greater good because everyone is sacrificing the greater good for the sake of individual interests. So this is what corruption is and the people who are corrupt are already defeated. No matter how powerful their armies may be, no matter what wealth they have, but mentally those people have been defeated. And to conquer them is only a matter of time because they are not a people who have victory or deserve any kind of victory or autonomy. They are people who are now worthy and worth being conquered. So these nations are conquered in one way or the other, whether it is militarily they are conquered or financially. What we see happening in these countries that are corrupt, they are in effect conquered. Nowadays it is unfashionable to have colonies, but that doesn't mean that the United States foreign policy does not have, policy, that does not have colonies. It is through the keeping of these different nations in debt that they are incapable of removing themselves from that they are completely under the financial hold of another country that is more powerful than them, under a superpower that they operate under. So the people are conquered because of the corruption that exists within them. So this is the way in which this particular riyasat was conquered. And this is also how any people who are weak become conquered as well. Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih rahimahullah explained how this can extend into religious issues as well. He says when a people become financially dependent on another people, then there is a weakness that arises in their principles. He says that in many countries in Africa, our Jamaat has experienced that the people over there understand the beauties of Ahmadiyyat. They are convinced of his arguments and, they, and of its arguments and they wish to accept Ahmadiyyat. But they say that the financial aid that we receive from the Saudis is something that implicitly places restrictions on our religious freedom. So when a people receive financial aid, and it does not have any strings attached to it, then you can say that those people are still free. But there is no such thing anywhere in the world of a person receiving financial aid as a country where there is no strings attached to it. Whether they are politically subjugated or religiously subjugated, in one way or the other, they are subjugated. So when the Saudis, for example, give funding for the building of mosques and the establishment of religious centers and the teaching of Islam, then of course it is a noble thing by which the message of Islam is spread. But there is definitely strings that are attached to it. And it is that you are to stick to the interpretation of Islam that we are putting forward. Whether you understand it or not, whether you are convinced of it or not, but your financial aid is tied with it. And the moment a person's religious freedom is tied with their financial benefit, uh, with, with their financial interests, then they cease to be religious, religiously free in the true sense of the word. And they are subjugated in that sense of their life and in that sense of the word. So this is the reality that many Muslims are living in that by accepting financial aid, they have abandoned by their own hands religious freedom. 
It is because of a weakness that exists within them and a lack of a strength of character that exists within them. So Ahmadiyyat seeks to create a strength of character within each and every individual, even within the Jamaat. When Huzur has his meetings with the different, with the Umarah of all the countries across the world and missionaries from across the countries, from countries across the world, then there are certain countries that are not fully established yet and they receive grants from Markas. It is because the, there is a great deal of poverty in those countries and the system of financial sacrifice in Jannah has not been as fully established by which the administrative centers of those countries can be run and the masajid can be built and all those other programs can be run. But still in those meetings, Huzur pushes those emirs of those countries that you should move towards financial independence in the sense that you should not be dependent on markas, on taking grants from markas. Now of course here it is all jamaat money. There is no issue of a doctrinal uh, pressure that is being put on anybody because of money. Everyone has done bayt to the khalifa. Everyone's message and singular purpose that they have voluntarily adopted is to take the message of the khalifa and the interpretation of Islam that Ahmadiyyat has taught and the will of the khalifa and establish it everywhere in the world. That is essentially what Islam teaches with khilafat. That through Khilafat Allah Ta'ala will establish the religion and the interpretation, the true interpretation of religion that He has willed. This is the institution and the purpose of Khilafat. So there's no issue of any um, uh, religious or freedom of thought being lost through financial assistance. But despite that, Huzur prefers that those countries begin to establish themselves in a way where they can stand on their own feet. And Huzur is very appreciative of those countries that are poor, but they do not take any grants from markas at all. So even within Jamaats, this self-sufficiency is something that is sought to be established. And this is a sense of self-respect that each person should have within themselves, by which they are not dependent on any kind of financial aid or any kind of grant that comes from others. For us as Ahmadis, this is all the more important because we know in our history that it is economic pressure that has been placed on Ahmadis throughout the past by which we have been pushed to try and abandon our religion. This is something that happened in Pakistan where countless assets of the Jamaat were seized because of this difference of religious opinion. And this is something that Ahmadis have to face all the time. That before their lives are threatened, it is their income and their businesses that are threatened. Their educational opportunities are threatened. Their financial opportunities are threatened. Their advancement in the careers, the burning down of businesses. All of these things happen first before then things escalate to the point of lives being taken and fatwas of qatl are actually acted upon. So from the very beginning, whether we live here in the United States in comfort or not, the fact is that the future of Ahmadiyyat as a true community that Allah Ta'ala has sent is always one that has to face persecution. It is only a matter of time. The state of comfort is something that's just a temporary state that exists. But until the time of victory comes, that's the, the, the Ahmadi must always be mentally prepared for facing every type of persecution and of resisting every type of pressure that others may place upon him. So when we see and we have observed that people have been politically conquered in the past because of financial pressure, and that people have been religiously conquered, even today it is happening, and today it happens economically as well, through financial pressure, then when the institutions and the countries that we live in begin to turn against us, then these same patterns are going to be repeated. The Khulafa have reminded us of this as well, that in the same way that Ahmadis face persecution in so many different countries in the world, in the East, in the Middle East, in all different places, 
So also this freedom and this comfort that we enjoy here in Western countries is just a temporary state. These countries are just as capable of, of ignorance and of persecution and of backwards thinking as any other place in the world. And when these places come on that same line and that same pattern and begin to pers persecute us for being Ahmadis and for being Muslims, then those same means will be adopted. And if at that time we are not willing to make financial sacrifice, then we will be conquered psychologically as a people. And there will be no need to make any other conquest of convincing us of the f falseness of Ahmadiyya through arguments or any other thing at all. We will already be conquered as a people. So financial independence is something that is extremely important. There was one time where a question was asked of us at Muslim that when you see that the British are oppressive of the people of India, then although you may oppose those who break the law to get rid of British rule over India, but what other solution would you propose in that situation that the Jamaat do? Because civil disobedience and rebelling against authority is something that Islam does not allow, that Ahmadiyya does not permit. So that Muslim said that we would never have to go to those means that Gandhi or other people have adopted of civil disobedience, of breaking the law of the country or riots or rebellions or marches or protests or anything like that. He said that if we wish to rid ourselves of British rule, then in the way that Tariq-e-Jadid has taught and the way that that initiative had been placed in the Jamaat, he said we as a people would become financially independent. And through our financial independence, we would be able, acting within the laws of the country, to make it so that there is no economic incentive for another people to rule us, and by which we cannot be subjugated. And there would be such a financial loss for those who are ruling over us, that within legal means that we exist, we would be able to overthrow the oppression that we are under. So Hazur didn't, in that particular answer, he didn't go into the details of how it is that this initiative would be implemented. But he said that if we were to approach the situation, then we would secure our economic freedom. And through that financial independence, and not being subjugated through corruption or through financial aid or through any other means, that is how a people secure their independence and that's how we would secure our independence. So the, when Allah Ta'ala says that Allah Ta'ala calls you to make financial sacrifice so that He may give you life, then this is one of the meanings of that statement. That when a people are not inclined towards financial sacrifice, then they have a love for wealth that is based on materialism and by which they can be maneuvered and, and uh, twisted into any form that people want to make them into. But when a people have the habit of financial sacrifice, then already they have to ask themselves this question again and again, that do I fear the loss of my wealth? To what extent is Satan making me afraid of the loss of wealth? And then they come to terms with the loss of wealth. They live with a lower standard of living and they live comfortably in that standard. And then they are ready to offer financial sacrifice. So then when the time comes when someone threatens them with poverty, then they have no fear of poverty left in their hearts. And they are able to stand on principles. So financial sacrifice is something that may seem independently to be just an action of giving money to poor people or making sacrifice for the spread of Islam and all these things. But in its essence and in its philosophy, it is meant to strengthen the mentality of a people, to make them strong and independent, by which they have the qualities by which with their ideas they can conquer other people. But when a people fall to materialism, then far be it from being able to conquer other people, they are a people who are deserving of being conquered. They do not deserve even the autonomy that they temporarily enjoy. 
So through financial sacrifice, when Allah Ta'ala teaches us the importance of financial sacrifice, then these are points that we can remember. And when we make financial sacrifice, when we do this mujahida, we not only do a service for ourselves personally, but we do a service for ourselves as a qawm, as a jamaat, and as a people. And it strengthens us on a social level, and it develops within us the character that is necessary to stand on our own two feet and stand against any force that seeks to move us away from the principles on which we have taken a stand and which we seek to spread throughout the world. So these points will end today's daras and uh, now we'll go for the breaking of the fast. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala Ali Muhammad wa barik wa sallim innaka hamidun majeed.